Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 2 The Monogamy of the System The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 new episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. This series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the current crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism when not only gender, class and race imbalances are reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. Dear Brigitte, A few months ago, I wrote you one of those emails that I could call love letters to a stranger. I write them when the emotion overcomes my shyness, taking the advantage that I do communicate better when I write than when I speak. Between confessional writing and shared self-therapy, I thank you for a whole body of research that comes out of the text to strategically contaminate life our lives, to lively contaminate theory. We have said many times, perhaps too many times, that the personal is political. The meaning of the statement gets lost because of its repetition. With you I learned many things, among them that the ideological is also emotional, that ideologies produce feelings, and that feelings we feel are real and hurt even if they come from social constructions, from social fictions. I remember that you responded to my very first email, and it made me very happy. COVID-19 had already been introduced in Europe and was a blatant reality in Asia, becoming a global pandemic a few days after that first exchange between us. I still wonder if it would be considered a global pandemic if Europe were not so affected. Eurocentrism has revived with it. COVID-19 appeared in our lives to fully install itself in them, not only in the present, but in a future that produces a lot of vertigo because of the consequences and instrumentalization of the pandemic by governments, corporations and people in power. Just before that moment, I remember somehow queerly romantic living with you for many days. Our intimate relationship, intimate for me, you didn't know me, started with a conference from 2017, in which you began to develop your research about monogamy as a social system. It was one year before the publication of your book, Monogamous Thought, Polyamorous Terror. I confess that I haven't had the chance to read it yet, not for lack of desire, but for the lack of time. But I know that in this book you shake up many of the considerations we have about love, monogamy, and polyamory. You expand their meaning and consequences beyond the commonplace, even the feminist commonplace. Precisely because the love of friends can save us from the abuse of romantic love, I dream of a world in which this form of love is more important than that of the couple, or where love does not imply hierarchies of exclusion and exclusivity. As you often say, love is blind, but not female friends. 
In that first lecture I saw, you started by talking about your experience as an activist. Also about your rapid departure from the academy, or the question of class in relation to love but also to the intellectual world. A question of class that cuts around both your relationship to English and mine. That's why this podcast does not arise from a conversation in which we both share the same time in different screens, but from an epistolary strategy in which you send me a recorded letter and I reply with an email or a voice note and so on. We are both thinking in borrowed language. We are both dealing with linguistic hierarchies. We are both speaking also in Spanish, in Catalan and in Galician, because we share telluric spaces and pasts. That conference was followed by many other talks and public presentations. And I was somehow able to follow your research life process from my screen in 2020. As you yourself say in some of them, philosophy has been very little concerned with love. Although Foucault was very concerned with historicizing and demonstrating the ideological character of sexuality and sex. I remember here how Derrida was very offended in an interview in which he was asked about love as if it wasn't a subject worthy of being thought of by him. I can think of many better places for deconstruction than love, because, as you so clearly explain, love is intimately connected to the construction of the nation-state, to multiple forms of racism, to Islamophobia, and to many of the frontiers that establish an quote-unquote us as opposed to a quote-unquote them. Not by chance, romantic love and the nation-state appear and take hold at the same time. Thank you so much for taking love so seriously. When the lockdown started in many European cities, I was very concerned about the heteronormativity and monogamy of the situation. I can't deny that I was very influenced by your talks, conferences and written texts. Neither can I deny that I was also concerned about my personal situation. I don't fit into the heteronormativity, even though it lives inside me like a social echo. You have taught me also that having sex-effective relationships with men is not synonymous with heterosexuality, that heterosexuality is all the scaffolding that supports and surrounds them. When the lockdown became a habit... I was still scared by the emotional hierarchy of affections and the naturalization of traditional and Western relationship forms over many other possibilities that we were claiming as legitimate. The family, the home, the state or the nation emerged as spaces of protection. The good citizen COVID-19 appeared in the public space and became the judge and police of the bad citizen COVID-19. The person who does not fit into the traditional pre-pandemic structures. The pandemic is global. However, it does not affect everyone equally, nor do the solutions or formulas to counteract it work equally well or badly for all human lives and societies. Just like love or the nation-state or identity, the universal is a space of exclusion. During these months, our emails tend to say, I hope you and your loved ones are healthy and well. When I write this sentence, I think of you. I also think of Marie-Luth Esteban. Both of you talk about creating networks and solidarity with people 
who are not from our affective or affinity environments. Lou Drago refers to a similar attitude when they talk about radical sociability. That's why sometimes I add in my emails, I hope the people we don't love and don't know are also well. Not loving doesn't mean hating. As you say yourself, affections include the disaffected, even if they are hardly talked about in the public sphere. I'll say goodbye here with an old-fashioned hug. Polyamorously inclusive Sonia. I think it's important to start talking about what do I mean when I say monogamy. So far, we've been thinking of monogamy as a practice and as a romantic practice. We've been thinking that monogamy means that you have a romantic relationship with only one person at a time. I've been having non-exclusive romantic relationships for some 25 years, and I realize that having several engagements, romantic engagements, at the time doesn't change the question, the issue, and takes it back to a personal somehow you can do it or a self-improvement stuff that I'm not really interested in because it sounds too individualistic or too neoliberal to me. When we relate this yes you can to capitalism, for example, we are unable to go farther than picturing ourselves as capital makers since we want exclusivity or if we feel some kind of possession over somebody, as these questions were just fancy, some kind of whims. But still, we live in a society that tells us that you are less if you are not in a couple, or if you don't get desire, that is a kind of capital itself. But worst, from my contest, at least in Barcelona, we cannot pay a rent if we are not in couple. Finding a place to live that is not couplehood, couple-wise design is almost impossible. Also, couplehood is a way to get official permission to stay in a country that doesn't want you, if you are an undesirable foreigner. As being romantically loved from a national one makes you acceptable for the nation. Also, whenever you cannot pay your needs, your survival needs, or when you are sick, not only one day or one week, but for years. You ask for help to your couple or to your blood family because they are the only ones who feel that they must take care of you when you are really in need. Also, we live in a society that uses sex and desire to mark who is your couple and who is not. Even who is your family, issue from blood, and who is not. Mixing desire, love, survival, belonging and identity all the time. So with all this together, needing sexual exclusivity is not only about yes, you can or you cannot. It's about survival or it's about an ideal of survival. So question about monogamy does is not about the individual feeling, but about the social organization that drives us into this feeling and the political way to look into the narratives of this feeling.
What I did, I took the structure, thinking it as a system, not as a practice. The result is that monogamy becomes a social way to organize our survival as individuals through alliances based on desire and based on romantic love. So, a hierarchy of alliances where couplehood one, two or seven are on the top of the survival structure, family being the second step, friendship probably being the third and so on, leaving outside of our security spaces the otherness, people who are not us, who are not our people. They are not only outside of our security space, but they are a threat to our survival. The first important idea on this is that you cannot survive by yourself, which I agree. But monogamous system denies the possibility of other alliances aside couplehood. The second important idea is that otherness is a danger. This person that will threat your couple, that will take it away from you, that will take it away from your survival structure. And this otherness is based in your emotions. So the idea that you can, for example, dislike somebody and still make alliances with almost disappears. This is what I call monogamous mind, because it's not only related to romantic relationships, but to the whole way we make groups in the industrial urban modernity and its consequence of the needs of this industrial urban modernity. Those are the needs of the modernity, not our needs. Needs that are capitalist, that are gender-based, and I mean binarious gender-based, and that are related and creating colonialism slash racism toward other ways to organize society. So, when I talk about monogamy, I don't care with how many people you have sex or if you have sex at all or if you have sex with yourself. And I don't care how many people you love. I care about how we make groups, call it family, call it activism and especially call it nation. Because patriotism is the same mechanism as romantic love applied to the nation. Also for me it's very important to make clear that I am not thinking about these issues because of an intellectual need or whatever, but because of the violence in couplehood, inside the families, through the borders and in the way we build nations. In times of COVID, coronavirus, it is very clear to me the propaganda of couplehood as a safe space. We are locked down in our house's design, I'm not sure in your context again, but at least in Catalonia, where I'm talking from, designed to hold a couple with their children, one or two, not more. And the ones who doesn't have a safe space at home, or the ones who doesn't have a home at all, or the ones having a home through different houses, like diasporic families, or the uncoupled ones, or the ones who doesn't have a family to care for them, are just left behind. And also, the propaganda of the nation with patriotism is growing up very fast and very emotional, and this is very dangerous. Because patriotism always involves the idea of being better than others and safer when away from others, from these others that we define as we talk. 
disorders that they are defined by fear and confrontation itself. Chernego is the word used in Catalonia to name people issued from migration from other parts of the Spanish state, especially migration during Franco's dictatorship, after civil war, and during the years of economical recovering. It was a political slash economical migration, consequence of the persecution of Republican people after the war and the impoverishment of extensive areas inside the Spanish state and also the enrichment of some areas, like Catalonia, during that time. The Catalan industrial bourgeoisie made the industry and within the workforce that made possible this enrichment. There is, however, a myth saying that these great migrations were Franco's plan to dissolve the Catalan identity, diluting it by adding non-Catalan components to the terrain. Well, it is proof that people arriving to Catalonia were persecuted by the dictatorship police and often sent it back to their original territories. And it is obvious that capitalism, including Catalan capitalism, needs to exploit vulnerable workforce. Chernegos, we've been often in the middle of the national debate because we are suspicious of treason in a very monogamous way. These last years, the willing of national independence is being a very big issue in Catalonia. And in times of crisis, in times of confrontation, it seems that the binarious mind needs binarious answers. So the question about us was, and the question is, whom do you love more, Spain or Catalonia? As this typical question, whom do you love more, your father or your mother? Because the question, it is about love, since we still believe that love can do everything. Love is a safe space. So if we love, we will be willing to do whatever. We become trusty. My answer, even my public answer to this question is... I dislike them both equally. This is not, I must say, a very well-received answer. And let me make it clear, I don't need to be in love with an idea of having a state, or I don't need to hate no one to commit with a goal. For example, I am not in love with the idea of equal marriage, but I am able to commit with the struggle for many reasons, being inequality, legal vulnerability, and border politics, some of them. this national matter, Charnegos, we've been an issue because we are citizens, meaning we have right to vote. As you know, we had a referendum for independence the 1st October 2017. It was not a legal referendum, but it was very symbolic for us Catalans. Even not being recognized by the Spanish state, this referendum had voting lists based on nationality, and only Catalan people with legal Spanish ID could vote. I know it sounds weird, but it was like that. There were three categories on the play, and I'm thinking on Hannah Arendt's work. Belonging, citizenship, and alien. Alien were all the people left without right to vote, doesn't matter how long they've been in Catalonia. 
Citizens, we were the ones with right to vote, but not freedom to decide. And belongers were those people who could vote and were free to decide. When I say no freedom to decide, I mean that both national sites, Spanish and Catalan, they remind us on our bastard identity to require our vote. The Spanish propaganda was calling Charnegos to vote to stay in Spain because of our ancestors, a kind of blood debt. And the Catalan propaganda was telling Charnegos that we must vote for the independent Catalonia because this nation hosts us, welcomes us, a kind of migration debt. And both, they were talking about treason. So the bottom line is the structure of the nation that is the same structure of the couple. Belonging is based in love. Basing the belonging on something different than love is immoral and suspicious. If you have several loves and you treat them like in the same level, and I'm not thinking on different lovers, I'm thinking on giving time to your friends instead of giving all the time to your partner. So if you have several loves, you are not somebody to trust. And this infatuation, this crush, is the only thing that really matters. And it is a safe space to be in. And all those ideas sound very dangerous to me. I just had one, like, um, exclusive relationship in my life. I would say a normal relationship, meaning that I did what it was supposed to be done. I didn't decide what I was doing, actually. So that was when I was very young, my first relationship, romantic relationship, we can say. It was okay, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand what was the thing on between sex and love and sexual exclusivity and love and so on. I didn't get it, and probably I see the things in a very simple way, yeah. After all these years, I understood that it was quite more complex. Anyway, I decided not to have a romantic partner for a long time, because I couldn't see the way of doing it in acceptable way, acceptable for me. That means not lying, because I'm a very bad liar, and it makes me very stressed, so... How could I do all these things? But after a few years, I start finding out like mixed ways of doing that. Not having sexual exclusivity, but still building like long-term or middle-term relationships and romantic partnerships and so on. That was before I knew that the word polyamory exists. When I knew it, I was very happy to know that there were other people doing those kind of things. But still, that was it, something private for me. When I became public and I started writing about that, it was when the word became mainstream. Because then suddenly we got all these gurus. They were like heterosexual, male, middle-aged, middle-class, white that very soon start explaining how we must do things 
and which things were like forbidden because they were unethical and everything was like very personal everything was like if you have pain is because you are not good enough you are not grown up enough i was very disagree and very uncomfortable with this approach At that time, at least in Catalonia, the approach was gender blind, color blind, class blind, completely blind in the senses. And actually, it's been very difficult to make the actual relationship on between gender and sex romantic relationships. I know that nowadays can sound very weird because it's kind of obvious what's going on there. But it's been a big thing and a big, I could say, fight that we had some of us and that we've been very harassed in the polyamory movements, at least in Catalonia, and at least the most mainstream, and I know also abroad of Catalonia, because it was really an interest not to put in the middle the class issues, gender issues, racism issues as well. But we did it. Fortunately, it happened. When this word became mainstream and we had all these gurus and we had all this help yourself theory coming from the north-north, knowing that I call Catalonia the south-north or the north-south, but coming from the north-north, meaning from the Anglo countries, from the States, from the UK and so on, I start writing about that, writing from a political perspective and writing not from a systemic perspective because I didn't understand that at the beginning. The most I was working and talking with people and experiencing myself and rethinking my experience as well and researching, the most I was doing that, more I was uh, realizing that we were missing points. So I was in the quest for these points. I know that nowadays this is the center of my work because it's the most recent work that I did and I did it for plenty of years. But my work is not about love and it's not about monogamy. It is about otherness. That's the thing that is important for me. How it happens that it becomes like very difficult to be different and how it comes that any moment the war can start. A big word or a small word, but all the time violence is there together with difference. I think that it's probably a very typical and topical subject for somebody who was bullied at a school and suffered violence at home. But that's the way it is. And monogamy, or at least my vision on monogamy, is clearly touched by that. I'm worried these days with the use of the expression new normality. 
I think we didn't kill God, we just reshape it. Especially in these times that we are worried and that we are scared, we are in the quest of prophets and messiahs. So somehow critical thinking is becoming a way of prophetical thinking, a way of destiny reading thinking, and that's problematic, clearly. Because critical thinking is about analyzing the present, analyzing in the most sharp way the present and seeing all the possibilities that opens and it closes, the possibilities that appears and the possibilities that they are at risk of disappearing, to be able to act on reality. When we think about this future, like this new normality, as it was already done, as if somebody could read what is going to be already before it's done, in one hand we are accepting this kind of idea of written destiny that has huge consequences on critical thinking. But it worries me a lot what it means in terms of agency for all of us. This kind of defeat of thinking that everything is done, that the power will mark how things gonna be in the next time, and those things are gonna be normal already. What I mean is first that the future is to decide, is to be done, and we are part of it, so we will see what we can do and how much we can do, but we cannot accept a defeat from the present to the future. And also what I mean is that something to become normal is not enough to impose it. You must accept it as a normal. To see something as a normal is a political issue. And to think something new as a normal is a very political issue because you don't even have the habitus, you don't even have the I don't know how to say it in English. You are not even used to that, so it becomes invisible. You really have to invisibilize it to accept that it's normal. There is plenty decisions there that we're going to take part of them. And there is plenty agency on that. When we say just new normality, I think we are erasing all these things from this speech. In this moment, I think this is not the best thing that we can do for ourselves. Feminism is becoming mainstream, and this could sound good news. But still, we need to distinguish between feminist identity and feminist practice. Feminism as a method. It is not unique. It is not universal. It is located in our particular lives, in relation with our material conditions and structural conditions. Feminism as an identity is about recognizing yourself as a part of a movement, a diverse movement as well but to think yourself as a part of it. Identity and method can be two different things. Feminism as a mainstream identity has become a subject of a study, full of names and books and technical terms. This kind of feminism is more about knowledge than about awareness, and still is more about awareness than about wisdom. Feminist wisdom is everywhere. 
often without a feminist tag. This wisdom, born from subalternity in order to defeat a kind of gender destiny, is not only found in books. And if we look for it only in books, and only in so-called feminist books, whatever that means, we're gonna miss the whole point because we are reinforcing the hierarchy of knowledge merged from the age of reason that is the hierarchy that expels us out of the conception of knowledge itself. In this sense, the question about the subject of feminism sounds to me interesting but not important. It is not important, the question, but once it's made, the answer, it is important because it has consequences in real life and has consequences in the movement's political agenda. For me, the subject of feminism are our lives, everybody's life. Maybe the bottom line question is about who should be leading identity. And still, if this is the debate, the question could be how to build representative spaces without leadership. Anyway, I am more interested on methods, on how subalternity is created, recreated, and how can be hacked. And when I say recreated, I mean how defeating the narrative legitimates the narrative itself. How we fail to build a dialogue that is not a dialogue with the power. How we fail on building strategic identities following a spivak, that being a strategic avoids essentialism and avoids also, I think, binarism and confrontation because we are in a contextual identity that can change with the context, being all of them parts of you and especially parts of your relationship with the context. So in times of feminism as a mainstream identity can be important to keep in mind the difference on between feminist identity and feminist practice. So how to find out what is a feminist practice? And I say what is a, not the feminist practice. There is not a unique answer, but a way can be to identify which practices are copying the same old structure, universality being one of the big ones. Feminism focuses on the final result and not on the road to reach the final result is a big red light for me because the result depends on the context. I think on family as an example well known and the right not to have kids that can be a big issue for the ones forced to have kids and family. And when I say forced, I mean also discipline to have one. But for women and people forbidden to have kids and families, like lesbians, sex workers, sterilized population, people diagnosed with any kind of disnormality, this object of freedom can be the opposite one. So if we focus on the object, we forget the way, the story that drives us to that object. Maybe we could think rather than freedom towards what, Freedom from what? I like to picture feminism method not as a center with ages, but as a kind of rhizome. And the notes of this rhizome contains information about the struggles, about the strategies, that even if they are not reflecting my particular reality, I can not only learn about them, but learn from them.
I'm issue from a very poor family. Our history used to be transmitted by oral memory since nobody in my family knew how to write or read until my generation. And the ones who wrote the history were never interested in anonymous people. They were seeking for heroes, even for poor heroes, and the only heroicity my family ever made was to survive. And still, this oral memory transmission was cut down by diaspora. We've been segregated from our oldest not only by kilometers but by modernity. With the diaspora from little villages with no electricity, no TV, no radio, no telephone, to the big cities, we enter modernity. We enter this kind of historical universal present and we lost them. They were not important anymore. They were not a part of the modern present. So the only particular memory I received from the history of my family the story, as well of my family, the narrative, is about disappearing. They all died in the 1918 influenza pandemic. Just my grandfather survived, and during his childhood without family, he was sleeping into the neighboring barnyards on between animals and manure. Me, his granddaughter, I don't even know the exact words to talk about manures and barnyards. I had to check in Google. I've never been that poor, but the memory of this misery is something transmitted. I am acculturated on that. That is the most important practical information, life information, that I inherit from them. The philosopher Remedios Zafra talks about the dreads of poorness and how this drives the way you live, the chances you take, and the actual chances you have. In only two generations, me and people like me, we have moved from that misery to this, to being able to explain that misery when we talk about it, when we acknowledge it in a podcast in a very, very remote language to an art institute very, very far away from that world where I come from very far in an epistemic way. This movement is not a merit of my generation. It is the result of our people's tireless commitment to survive and to ensure that their lineage will survive, fighting to provide us with the tools of survival. But I'm thinking if this survival meant our individual one or a collective one and what this collective could mean. These survival tools meant for plenty of us to obtain cultural capital, social capital as well, and sometimes even economical capital. For sure, a lot more of it compared with where we come from. But the cultural capital is also performative. It's not only about academic achievements. It's not only about knowledge. It comes with a way of talking, a way of behaving. There is also the subjects that are important to talk about. There is the places where you go to find the knowledge, the voices that you listen to as your equals or as your mentors. It is even the tone of your voice. There is a way of dressing, a way of eating, a way of loving, a way of having sex. There is a way of hiding your slang that is not considered proper language. 
And there is a way of hiding your accent when you talk in these very remote languages of the cultural capital. So culture, as we understand it in modernity, it is a huge disciplinary machine and it points directly to class structure. As we conquer, and I really mean conquer, cultural capital for people like me, we leave behind our lower class to go somewhere else. It is a fiction because your roots, your history, and that transmitted dress comes with you altogether. Even because your plan's survival is not guaranteed being the first generation of your people not knowing what it means to starve. So your upgraded class is just a fiction. But worse than that, conquering cultural capital means in these terms to abandon your people to become something different. And I am wondering if there is a kind of treason to that collective effort that drives me, drives us up here. My main subject now is to figure out how to keep being us, how to achieve that cultural capital that is a tool for survival, not becoming part of that cultural capital. I don't know still how we can do it, but I'm working on it. Wish me luck and thank you for listening. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche a joint venture with Grajina Kulcic and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all fields of knowledge that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch, that's institut-kunst.ch, or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch, that's info.kunst.ch hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation Switzerland and Grajina Kulcic. More information on museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Voiceover and final editing, Elena Ziza. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research Team Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Promise No Promises is produced by the Art Institute HDK FHNW in Basel, Institut du Souche, ArtStations Foundation CH and Grajina Kulcic 2020.